Whoop, whoop, whoop. So many exciting things to tell you. I'm going to keep it short and simple. Number one, my book is now free, a digital version of my book, Building Simple Habits to a Healthy Me. You can just sign up and get it for free. Number two, come and say hello on Instagram. I'm having fun on Instagram doing exciting reels. Number three, I have four amazing packages for my Positively Healthy program called Magical May exciting exciting if you want to find out more book a call and let's chat and lastly remember radiate and renew four simple habits simple but mighty habits is starting may the 15th so come and sign up for that Welcome to Fit and Fabulous with me, Dr. Orlina Carrick. I teach busy mums who are trying to juggle everything to transform their lives, to lose weight and lead a healthy life so they can feel fit and fabulous. On the Fit and Fabulous podcast, we chat about nutrition, healthy living, emotional wellness in a way that you can apply to your life. I'll show you how to stop being frustrated and overwhelmed with healthy living and how to make it fun and easy. You're invited to sign up to my free New Me workshop. Change your mindset to healthy living in five days. Get to the bottom of those I can't do it thoughts and transform them into wow, it's so easy and fun. You can sign up at drorlina.com slash new me. That's doctor, D-R-O-R-L-E-N-A dot com slash new line in the middle, me. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fit and Fabulous with me, Dr. Alina Kerrick. Today we are talking cancer and how to avoid getting cancer with lifestyle measures. I'm super excited to welcome back Dr. Barry Morris. Last week we talked about how to reduce our risk of cancer with diet and this week we are talking lifestyle. What I really want you to take away from this episode is that there are things that you can do that aren't difficult, that you just have to work into your routine, that will make a vast difference to reduce your risk of cancer. Let's dive right in. Hello, hello, and welcome back. We have Dr. Vary with us again, and we Hi, are Anna. still talking cancer because it's such an amazing topic. Yes, it is. <laughs> if you didn't check the first podcast, then go and check the first one where we talk about everything that you need to know about cancer and nutrition. Okay, yeah. I'll give you a spoiler. Vegetables and high fiber diet. <laughs> but we go into far more depth than that. Today, we are talking lifestyle and exercise. So, Vary, thank you so much for being here and for your time. Thank you for having me back. That is a pleasure. Okay, let's start talking about exercise first. So tell us about exercise and cancer. Okay, so a little bit of background to that. I work at Loughborough University in the Midlands in the UK. And I don't know if you know it well, but it is synonymous with sport. So when I first moved over there two years ago, and my background had always been viruses and cancer and the molecular cellular effects. Um, and I've always had an interest in cancer metastases. And I work with flasks full of cells. I'm not a whole person person <laughs> researcher. I'm a molecular cellular researcher. And when I moved there, they said, see if you can weave in some diet or exercise or, or um, sport element to your to your research. And so and that kind of opened up a whole new world for me. I had never considered, I'm almost ashamed to admit, I'd never really considered about the fact that there was so much about our diet and our lifestyle that can impact on our cancer risk. And so when I started to look into the literature in the field, this is when I found that we have the ability to prevent cancer in the first place 
also to reduce our risk of getting secondary cancers if we've already got cancer. But also if we're going through taking undertaking exercise can A, improve the ability of our cells to respond to treatment. It can also protect our healthy cells from being damaged by the treatment. And it can, not only that, it can help from a sort of psychological point of view as well. So it's a, it's a huge field and it really opened my eyes. And so now I've become a bit of a, a molecular, cellular geek about what happens well, in, in, no, but it's interesting that you say this. And I have to confess that when I was at school, I wasn't a sporty person because at my school that I went to, you were either fabulous at sport and you were in the school team or basically you wanted to look good and not really, you know, break yeah. into a sweat. And I think <laughs> that our education really let us down. And now as I look back as a a doctor, a paediatrician, someone who's now interested in lifestyle, I think this is the message that we should be giving our kids and society is that exercise and sport is part of a healthy diet, a part of a healthy life. And mm. that is the reason for doing it, not so that your school can win a tournament or look good. Mm-hmm. It's about so many more benefits. And in fact, I we evolved. Pardon? we've evolved to be more yeah. active. This is yeah. why we are the way we are. Yeah, if we totally. could outrun a bear, we would survive. If we couldn't, it's game over, right? Yes. And then in the last maybe 50 to 100 years, we've probably more like 50 years, we've overlaid on top of that evolution, this sedentary lifestyle. And, and we're getting loads of diseases cropping up, lots of obesity and metabolic diseases. Yeah, and eating more. It's really interesting. I don't know if you've read any Laurie Lee, but living in Spain, I have recently read his trilogy. So um, for those of you who don't know Laurie Lee, he's a British author and he lived in... 1920s and his books are about when he walks from a place which is quite a long way I think he was in the Cotswolds but it's quite a long way from London and he walks to London and then he decides to walk all the way around Spain in the blazing heat and he does it with a few dates in his pocket and that is literally what he does so he's walking all day with a few dates in his pocket and that is enough to sustain him and we've really moved away from that image of being active and not eating actually heaps, but that clearly enough to give him enough fuel to walk around yeah. to the reverse, which is being very sedentary and eating far more than we need and not exercising. So I think yeah. this idea about the last 50 years, it's so amazingly true. Yep, it really is. And yet, even though we know it, we still seem to not do stuff about it. I know there's lots of public health policies trying to get our children more active and trying to tackle childhood obesity and things like that. But we're so far away from actually making changes. Yeah, we are here to change that. So tell us, yes. <laughs> the three types of benefit, like, let me just recap because you did say this. So you said effects on tumour growth and spread, yep. effects on tumour metabolism and yep. anti-tumour immune response. Yeah. This all so that's very geeky to me. It is very geeky, but this is the kind of the molecular aspects of how exercise can um, help. In, in a cancer setting but then there's the other aspects that it can alleviate the side effects of the treatment yeah. and it can also alleviate the psycho, uh, psychological issues as well so okay. should we start with the molecular well or do you want to start with yeah but can, I, with? can i say to you we we are not geeky geeky people here so can you yeah. keep it simple and pretend that i'm five as simple <laughs> as possible so first of all if you exercise if you take cancer cells in a lab and then you coat them in serum, so blood taken from people who've done exercise, these cancer cells 
don't grow as fast as if you grow them in normal serum. So this means basically that exercise can stop cancer cells from growing by as much as 67%. Wow, that is amazing. That is amazing. However, it doesn't. there's no proof in either animals or in humans that if you've already got a tumour, that doing exercise can shrink that tumour. So, But it can stop it from getting bigger? But it can stop it from getting bigger, yeah. Okay. So that's the first thing that it does, which is amazing. The second thing that it does is it affects its metabolism as well. So this is coming back to our old glycolysis and glucose pathways. So we know that every cell in your body uses glucose for energy. And glucose we get from carbohydrates. We break it down into this molecular components and we get glucose, right? Now, there's, I know there's, we didn't talk about this actually in the last podcast, but maybe we should have. But there's a big lot of controversy around sugar and cancer. And does, sugar, does eating a high sugar diet feed cancer cells? Um, and I think the evidence is stacking up, but it's still not there to say one way or the other. But what is important is that cancer cells break down that sugar in a way from cells that also have many more ports on their surface to be able to take in more glucose. So if you were to take a healthy cell and a cancer cell and then put lots of sugar on top of them, I'm simplifying it, the cancer cell would be able to take up more sugar than the healthy cell. So by having a low sugar diet, you're not necessarily actually starving the cancer cells. Effectively, you're preferentially starving your healthy cells because what sugar, what little sugar is there, the cancer cells are going to mop up because they're greedy. Um, okay, so are you saying that a low sugar diet has been proved to prevent cancer? No, no, it hasn't. Except by the way that it, if you have a low sugar diet, you're less likely to be obese and obesity is linked to increased risk of different cancers. But that's the only link. It's not like your cancer cells are eating up all the sugar and therefore go back to the exercise. So we know that our, um, our cancer cells break down glucose in this different way. So they're a bit more greedy and they take up more than the healthy cells. But when you exercise, you're making your cells, exercise is a stressor, right? So it's making your cells more susceptible to this energy induced stress. And actually your cancer cells become, because they are, shall we say more unstable, they're more likely to succumb to this exercise and just stress and die. So exercise can help kill off your, shall we call them wobbly cancer cells? That's not a really technical term. The pre-cancer yeah. cells, the pre-cancer cells. Yeah, yeah. The ones that haven't quite well, turned the cancer into... cells that have, that have uh, genetic instability, basically. Okay. And the last one? That's the second. Yep, so the, the third one, which I think is most interesting, is the anti-tumor immune response. So we have a very good immune system that fights off bacterial and viral infections but they, it also keeps cancer cells at bay so we have certain types of um, immune cells that are involved in that and when you exercise what happens is you actually mobilize these and activate them against the cancer cells so we know that people who are well, we doing mice as well you can get uh, voluntary wheel running mice uh, studies where when they've been running on a wheel for a while they have a higher number of uh, this particular immune cell called natural killer cells, which are, as the name suggests, naturally able to kill cancer cells. So when you exercise, you're actually mobilizing them and um, more likely to be able to kill off the cancer cells that you've got in your body. I love those natural killer cells. It always made me yeah. think of some Tarantino movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> those are all the mechanisms by which exercise benefits us. How much exercise do we have to do and what type of exercise do we have to do? Good question. So the long and the short answer is we don't know and we don't know. 
No, we do. The recommendation is five times 30 minutes of moderate to high intensity exercise a week. So that is going for a brisk walk or a run for, say, for half an hour every weekday, let's say, or going cycling or something that gets your heart rate up. Something that gets your heart rate up. Something that gets your heart rate up. Moderate to high intensity. I find that really interesting because if you're reasonably fit, like I walk my children to school, um, and I walk You're back. Your <laughs> well, but I walk by myself reasonably quickly. When I walk with my children, it's clearly a little bit slower. But to me, that doesn't feel like it really gets my heart rate up, as opposed to when I go swimming and do as what my but, instructor says on fire. That really if, does get my heart rate up. Yeah, if you if you weren't fit, walking would get your heart rate up. But walking is still good for you, even if you're not getting your heart rate up. I would say if you're getting your heart rate higher than you know, your resting heart rate, say 60, 70, no, I'd say it's 60, probably. Uh, if you can get that up to like 90 to 100 doing some exercise, you're you're doing yourself some, some but good. My there. heart rate isn't going to get up to 100 by walking. Well, what would what would get it up to 100? Swimming? Yeah. Yeah, that then. <laughs> so does that mean I have to go swimming five times a week? Well, could you go running instead or cycling or walk, walk a little <laughs> no, bit okay. quicker? Okay, let me rephrase the question. When you say moderate exercise, does yeah. that include walking? Because I thought the recommendations were like just walking for half an hour is actually fine. And that's... I would call that low to moderate intensity. Okay. And it's better than nothing. Like I'm not saying it's not binary. It's a spectrum, isn't it? Okay. Um, okay. But I, yeah, the recommendation. <laughs> but then coming back to the second part of that question about what type of of exercise is good for you this is where we don't know trouble is that all days that have been done have been done so differently you can't compare them so it's hard to know but um there is evidence that household like housework and gardening and things like that this all helps it's basically about sitting less and moving more okay yeah. and what about high intensity exercise do you have any comments about that yeah that's um Again, uh, depends on the types of cancer and things like that as well. It's a bit more complicated. So when you do high intensity exercise, it is very much pro-inflammatory. So you actually get a pro-inflammatory response. You've got all these um, cytokines, those tiny little proteins called cytokines and chemokines, which are released and myokines released by your muscles. And this can help stimulate the growth of cancer cells. But that's one bout. If you then repeatedly do that, for up to say 12 weeks you become trained and you actually switch you've got a certain cell type in your body called monocytes and there's there's different subtypes of them and I'm trying to simplify it as much as possible but if you are untrained and you have chronic low-grade inflammation you've got one type of monocyte and they're pro-inflammatory but if you then undergo training for 12 weeks you can switch that and you have these anti-inflammatory monocytes instead so trained exercise high intensity good just doing it once in blue moon not so good so when you say trained what you're talking about doing it like once a week or once a day probably more like three or four times a week okay yeah yeah and so just to clarify for people who haven't heard of high intensity exercise the idea is this is that you whatever exercise you're doing it doesn't really matter whether it's swimming or running you do it to a maximum your maximum capacity just for a short period of time so I think the idea is you start at like 30 seconds and then you gradually build up to say yeah. two minutes but it's a really short period of time it's like interval training yeah yeah and yeah. that's it that's all you have to do so not very much but you're saying we need to do that three or four times a week rather than just once a week I would say so yeah I I, I don't actually know the, the numbers I'd need to go and okay. <laughs> check the literature for that but yeah Okay, fabulous. So we need to have some exercise. And I 
we'll do an entire podcast about exercise because it's such an amazing topic. And it is essentially the way we get to feel fit and fabulous, which is mm-hmm. now the name of the podcast, um, is by doing some exercise. And I think I always say that nutrition is like 80%. If you want to lose weight... Exercise is not a great way to lose weight. You can't, as the, as the phrase goes, you can't eat your way out of a bad diet. Sorry, uh, you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. Yeah, run a bad diet, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But um, you, if you want to feel fabulous, you need to have some exercise in there because otherwise you aren't going to feel fabulous. Okay. No, nope, absolutely. What? It's really good for your, your psychological benefits as well. So it's been proven that uh, cancer patients who undertake exercise are much less likely to have the depression and anxiety that comes along with with many diagnoses. So, Yeah, and I think, you know, thinking about that, I need to do another podcast on mindfulness as well. But I think part of that is that when you're exercising, you do just cut off that chatter that's in your brain. And, and yeah. depending on the exercise as well, it can release endorphins. And, yeah. you know, you, if you're doing like a, a group exercise, so, you know, I swim in a group. I know it's not a group sport, but you're still getting that um, camaraderie as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, lifestyle. Lifestyle, yeah. We all know smoking is not good for us, right? Uh, we do, we do. I don't think we need to talk about smoking because I, don't I think, think do. smoking Every- is so... <laughs> uh, drinking we've already talked about in the last um, podcast episode with, with the links between alcohol and cancer. Um, sun damage is an interesting one. So we need about 15 minutes a day of unex- or exposure to the sun to be able to get enough vitamin D. But then after that, we really ought to be covering up or putting some suntan lotion on um, to try and reduce the damage that we get from the UVB rays from the sun, which can cause um, damage to our DNA. And that can be linked to cancer. And I think, you know, we all know that sun damage is is difficult living in somewhere, a hot country. I know the UK isn't. But in the summer, I find it so difficult to keep on top of, um, you know, we have sun suits and sun hats and T-shirts and try and constantly keep out of the sun. But the reality is, if you live somewhere really hot, and I'm constantly slothering on um, mm. suntan lotion, and I asked you about this, and I have seen reports that certain suntan lotions are in themselves cancer-causing. But to me... Um, I think I'd take the risk of excluding the sun damage, if that makes sense. I'd rather exclude the sun damage um, than not use it because you just can't avoid the sun in the summer here. And it's about level of risk, isn't it? So what are the chances of you getting cancer from using that particular suntan lotion? And what are the chances of you getting skin cancer from exposure to the sun? Much, much higher. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. And not to mention the fact that it hurts when you get burnt, right? <laughs> oh, I was so cross last summer. Um, my, I'm so, so careful. And we've been living here for eight years now. And my children have never been sunburnt. And um, they went to... Uh, uh, well, they until this summer, they went to a kid's camp. And um, I don't know what happened, but my son came back with summer. He was only five years old, so it wasn't his fault. And I was just so cross. And you know when you think... It's done now, and I can't change that. But um, anyhow, I'm getting started. But we are, we are remarkably resilient. And if, if you saw his skin then flake and peel, that's a good sign that his, his anti-tumor response was working. So, oh, Or is he just very, very brown? 
No, well, this was the problem, was that actually he was very pale because he had been wearing his sunsuit. So when he had a morning in the sun, his twin sister, who had not been wearing her sunsuit so much and was slightly brown, she had more resilience to it. Mm-hmm. It's really hard, isn't it? Really hard to know what to do for the best. Yes, but ideally you don't want to be brown and you don't want to burn either. No. And when I say brown, I mean if you're white-skinned, you don't want to be yeah, getting <laughs> Yes. Although I lived in France for 10 weeks one summer, worked for Key Camp Holidays, it was great fun. And I came back so blonde and brown that my husband didn't recognise me when he picked me up from the airport. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what else have we got on our list? Uh, Again, overeating. So obesity is linked to as many as 13 different cancers. Um, That is amazing. Yeah. And it is, it's one of the, it's the biggest risk factor at the moment, in, certainly in the UK, and I would imagine in parts of the US as well. It's one of the biggest risk factors for getting different cancers. Um, and it's very much linked to having too much blood glucose and insulin insensitivity and all the rest of that. So if you're diabetic or pre-diabetic, you've got an even higher risk of developing um, certain cancers as well. Okay. Um, um, we've talked about diet. Yeah, inactivity very much linked to that as well. So the 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 less active you are, the more likely you are to be obese. Um, and it's not cut and dried. There are plenty of thin people who do nothing. But even if you are, I think there's a good, great Irish comedian called Ashleen B, and she talks about being fat thin <laughs> or thin fat. <laughs> so even if you are thin but not doing anything, um, you're still increasing your risk because you you're you're. Um, yeah, it's to, do, it's to do with the metabolic hormones in your body. Okay. Stress is an interesting one. I had a project student a few years ago who wrote a meta-analysis linking different types of stress to secondary breast cancer risk. And she'd, she'd gone to great lengths and she categorized it all into different categories. So job-related stress, financial stress, personal ill health, family ill health, um, work, um, and there was other versions as well. And... It was very tentative results at first. So she did a meta-analysis of stuff that's out there already, but basically she was able to see a connection between stress of personal ill health and that of a loved one, increasing your risk of getting a secondary breast cancer. And what about a primary cancer? Yeah, so there's lots of evidence already out there to say that certain certain stress-related conditions can increase your risks of getting cancer. Okay, and so uh, we've... I've done an entire podcast on stress with Marianne. What can we do? I mean, I think the flip side of this is if we look at mindfulness, there's quite a lot of evidence to show that mindfulness has benefits on health, productivity, happiness. Is there anything specifically that talks about cancer and mindfulness? Uh, Yes, but it's again, it's around psychological benefits for patients who undertake mindfulness-based CBT therapy and helping them to um, cope with the, the diagnosis and to reduce their depression and anxiety journaling as well is a really interesting one that I think so it's, it's very much linked to mindfulness it's about being aware and writing okay. down writing through your thoughts but, but that's yeah. a general stress reduction rather than specifically yeah. okay fine yeah okay and sleep tell us about sleep sleep's one that's um quite interesting so if you don't get your fully hours a night certainly I think it's if you don't get seven if you get seven or less hours you're you have an increased risk of certain cancers, as well as heart disease. We know this. Um, but it's really hard if you are an insomniac and sleep is a real problem, then, you know, how, how do you get around that? You can't just make yourself fall asleep. Or um, a mother. 
or or yes or a mother <laughs> but then hopefully you wouldn't be having that for all of your life it would just be for a short period well you say a short period but like actually if you space your children out and you know different children Absolutely. sleep Don't differently <laughs> so I look now and think well my oldest child is now 10 and I you know I do normally sleep eight hours a night but you know my kids still sometimes get up in the middle of the night and obviously compared to where we were a few years ago but there's definitely five or six years of breastfeeding mm-hmm. and talking yeah. about breastfeeding yeah breastfeeding. that reduces your risk yeah that, um, breastfeeding reduces your risk of getting breast cancer later on in life but it's been proven that women who don't breastfeed are more likely to get breast cancer later on okay and is there an amount of time that you need to breastfeed for that uh, off the top of my head i couldn't tell you i'd have to look that up okay i can look but that up. i know the recommendation is like six, minimum six months isn't it uh, yeah, yeah, but some people will um, breastfeed for a year or two years. Yeah, I think some, to be honest, I, I think, I think the longer you breastfeed, the more benefit you get. And I don't know if this is right, but this is what we were taught at medical school, and I don't know if things have changed. But it's to do with the hormone increases and decreases. And previously, um, people would either be pregnant or breastfeeding, which basically meant their hormones were all on a platter. Whereas when you're neither pregnant nor breastfeeding, your estrogen and progesterone levels are basically going up and down, up and down on a monthly basis. And it's that up and down, up and down, which is contributing to your risk of cancer. Oh, so okay. the longer you're breastfeeding, the better. Right. So I only had one child and only breastfed for four months. I'm screwed. <laughs> does that does that sound about right? It does sound about right, yeah. It makes sense logically from a science point of view. And so the other big question is HRT. HRT can increase, because it's your, you're basically giving your body estrogen, aren't you? It can increase your risk of breast cancer in postmenopausal women. So HRT is continuing that up and down trend yeah. Yeah. as opposed to putting it on plateau. Well, it's providing your cancer cells with a growth factor, the goodies that they need to grow. So, okay. um, yeah. Okay, and lastly, you interestingly have emotions. So tell me about I, I, emotions. I'm regretting writing that down because I'm thinking it's probably very linked to stress. Actually, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe we can cut no, this. No, but I think it's true. I don't. So I think this is something that I want to explore more in the podcast, and I think this is kind of where woo woo meets science. Well, it doesn't. Yeah. I guess that woo woo is just stuff we don't really understand, but that emotions and stress are. What have you got there? Radical remission. Yes. by Kelly Turner. She talks yes. about the nine factors that can make a real difference. And one of them is about uh, emotions and trying to find a, a right wording here. So you carry on while I read this. Yeah, releasing suppressed emotions and increasing positive emotions. So two of the nine factors. Yeah, so read out the nine factors. Radically changing your diet. Yeah. Taking control of your health. Following your intuition. Using herbs and supplements, which are a little bit on the fence on that one releasing suppressed emotions increasing positive emotions embracing social support deepening your spiritual connection and having strong reasons for living so these were nine key factors that all these thousand people that she interviewed had in common and they were uh, rad- they were uh, patients who'd undergone radical remission so some of them were like stage four you're just being sent home to die still alive 20 years later oh wow yeah that's a really interesting i think for me, and I've done quite a lot of thinking about um, emotions over the last few years, um, partly from a personal point of view and partly being a mother to children who all my children are really highly strung children. So they have no <laughs> problems at all letting out those negative feelings. And I think this is where we get to is that with anxiety, we do 
hide those emotions quite a lot and we run away from them. And there is a balance to be got from acknowledging that emotion and realizing that that emotion is just an emotion and it will pass. And you can sit there and go, hello, anger, I'm angry or hello, sadness, whatever it is. And sitting with that emotion and seeing what happens. And the balance is what we see in our children is being acting out on that emotion. So, you know, they're angry and then they start throwing things around and they are then controlled by that emotion. Yeah. And I think that you try and suppress that and tell them to sit down and calm down. And it's really, it's a really big one. But if you, I invite you to think about what happens to you when you feel angry. You have a physiological response. There's actually a response, right? So, of course, it makes sense that if we suppress our emotions, we're not allowing that cycle to complete and then this can lead to the buildup of, you know, adrenaline or whatever other uh, cortisol, other stress-related hormones. It's not. Yeah. No, it's not it, is, it is interesting. It is interesting. But I think that it is about getting that balance because you clearly don't want to be living in a state where you're permanently angry and permanently shouting about something mm-hmm. because you're upset about it. Mm-hmm. But equally, you don't want to be burying all that anger either. So I think yeah. getting that balance right is what we're striving for. Yeah. That's what it is. Life is about balance. Or as Gary Keller in his book, The One Thing says, it's about counterbalance. So you will have times where you're at one extreme, but then you have to do something to counterbalance that extreme. So rather than us swinging like a pendulum, it would be good if we could just teeter like a ballerina on point and just constantly making these little adjustments to try and counterbalance. Yeah, yeah. That's what I hear about, um, you know, you listen to these... um, people who are mindful mentors, shall we say. And I have to note that a lot of them live in Tibet and don't seem to have four children jumping on their head on a daily basis. I think that would um, push them a little bit. But what they basically say is, you know, there's this quote, well, how come you don't get triggered or upset by all these things? And the answer is, I do. I just come back to centre more quickly than you do. Yeah. And I think that's really the key. But we are definitely getting off track from (laughs) (laughs) cancer. So let me just recap. Cancer and lifestyle, big nose, are smoking, drinking alcohol, sun damage, overeating, um, inactivity, um, diet, which we talked about last week, bad stress we're going to go with, not getting enough sleep and not being in control of your emotions. HRT we're going to add to the list and Mm. breastfeeding is good and um, protective. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good comprehensive rundown. (laughs) Excellent. Anything else you'd like to add? Just about, you know, going back to the exercise thing and chemotherapy. When you take exercise, when you take a patient and get them exercising, before surgery, they're more fit for surgery. They recover more quickly. When they, you get them exercising before and during chemotherapy, they respond more positively. They can tolerate higher doses. Their healthy tissues are protected from the chemotherapy and they have fewer side effects. So I think it's not just about prevention. It's also about living well with it and through it, through the diagnosis, through the treatment. So there you have it. A big, big thank you to Vary for coming and talking to us and spending so much of her valuable time teaching us this really important message. And I really want you to grasp this message. There are so many things that you can do that will really significantly reduce your risk of getting cancer, both diet and lifestyle. And once you're 
in the habit of doing these things, they're super easy. And I know that sometimes change can be difficult, but that's the great thing about habits. Once you're in the habits, you don't really have to think about it. Now, if you want to find out more about Vary, she has a fabulous website called EssentialCancerEducation.com. And if you are somebody who helps people with cancer, healthcare profession, then she has an amazing guide called the incredible, incredibly simple three-step system to help your patients live well with cancer. And you can sign up and get that. And I'll leave a link for that in the show notes. So thank you once again, Vary. It has been amazing. Now, if you are enjoying this podcast, I would ask a huge favour. First of all, I would love to say thank you to you for listening. But secondly, I would be really grateful if you could share it with your friends. If you have some people who you think, do you know what, you would really enjoy listening to this podcast, then please share the podcast with them. Okay, thank you. Goodbye and see you next week. for listening to this episode of Fit and Fabulous with me, Dr. Alina. If you enjoyed it, I would be really grateful if you could share it with a friend. Every time you share a podcast episode with a friend, it helps me to reach and help more people. Remember, you're welcome to sign up for the new me challenge. Dig out those I can't do it thoughts and replace them with, wow, this is easy and fun. You can sign up at drlina.com slash new me. That's D-R-O-R-L-E-N-A dot com slash new dash in the middle me. Have a lovely week and see you next week. Goodbye.